Okay, welcome back guys. So this evening we are doing two books again. We're doing Philemon and then Philippians. So we're doing them because um, they go together very well thematically. Um, Philemon is only one chapter, so uh, um, you know it's not that much difficult of reading. We'll start with that and then we will do Philippians. So as usual, if you guys have any questions, any thoughts, any comments, please don't be afraid to stop me or put it on the, the, the chat and then, yeah, we'll get to it. So if you turn to Philemon, it's kind of hard to find because it's such a small, it's just one page in your Bible, uh, but it's after, after Titus and before Hebrews. So turn to, if you have your physical Bible, turn to Hebrews and then right before that, it's Philemon. So Philemon is just one chapter right and this is a very different book it's a very different letter compared to what we normally get from paul uh he's normally giving theological letters to churches and pastors but this is a letter written to an individual so it's quite personal and it gives us an insight into interpersonal relationships one-on-one -on -one relationships as well as the need for sacrifice in our relationships we see an example of sacrifice in covenantal relationships between God and God's people. So Philemon is someone who has a church that meets in his house. So verse 1 says, To Philemon, our beloved fellow worker, and Apia, our sister, and Archippus, our fellow soldier, and the church in your house. So it's thought that uh, Apia is his wife, it's Philemon's wife, and Archippus is his son. And verse 2 says, The church in your house. And Philemon has slaves. If not many slaves, then we at least know that he has one slave and his name is Onesimus. Onesimus leaves Philemon, he runs away, and we are not quite sure of the reason why. But the strongest argument that has been presented is that it's because Onesimus had stolen money and then ran away. Because Paul says, whatever he owes you, I will pay back. Right? Whenever, whatever Onesimus owes you, I'll pay back, put it on my account. He runs away and he ends up in Rome and he meets up with Paul and he gets saved. We don't know the details, but he meets Paul, he gets saved, and then he ministers to Paul. So look at verse 10. Verse 10 says, I appeal to you for my child Onesimus, whose father I became, whose father I became in my imprisonment. Formerly he was useless to you, but now he is indeed useful to you and me. So there's a play on Onesimus' name. Onesimus means useful that's what his name means means useful so paul is saying he was useless but now he is useful indeed he is useful he is his name so maybe he was bad at his job he was useless and then he stole money and then ran off with it but now that he's saved he is useful he's useful to me and he's useful to you philemon so at the time the romans had a law that it was a requirement for you to return a runaway slave that is what paul is doing He's returning Onesimus to Philemon. But he's encouraging Philemon to let Onesimus go free, to give him his liberty, so that he can return to Paul because he was very helpful to Paul. Paul is in prison, and so Philemon would have been, uh, would be the one getting him food, running errands, delivering letters, etc. He can't go around doing, doing what he wants to do because he's reliant on Onesimus, right? Paul is, is imprisoned. So look at the sacrifice here. There's the sacrifice of Paul because Onesimus was helping him. He was useful to Paul. 
And now he's going to sacrifice his service by sending him back to his master. There's a sacrifice on Onesimus' part because he will have to go back to Philemon and receive whatever punishment there might be and repent and receive what must be done. Right? He belongs to the Lord now and so he will do what is right. And there's the sacrifice for Philemon because Paul is going to say, release him and send him back to me. Neither of them have to do what they have to do, but they will do it anyway. And Paul, Paul is a master psychologist, right? He's very sneaky. He's very smart. It's not that he's manipulating anyone, but he understands human nature so, so well. See how he starts off his letter. So look at verse four. He says, I thank my God always when I remember you in my prayers. So it's a thanksgiving prayer that Paul is graciously and tactfully expressing towards Philemon. And he says, verse 5, because I hear of your love and of the faith that you have toward the Lord Jesus for all the saints. And I pray that the sharing of your faith may become effective for the full knowledge of every good thing that is in us for the sake of Christ. For I have delivered, for I have derived much joy and comfort from your love, my brother, because the hearts of the saints have been refreshed through you. So he, he congratulates him, he thanks him before he asks him for a favor. And that is a, a good way to do this. Right, A principle of leadership, whether it's in the family or work or church or your sports team, if you just walk in and start shouting at people and dictating towards them, you might get them to do what you want, but you run the risk of provoking them to wrath or being dissatisfied. And before long, those people won't want to be around you. And Paul knows that, so first he encourages, he exhorts, and then he says, look, this is what I want you to do, or this is the best way to go about this. And so he says, look, whatever Onesimus owes you, put it in my account, put it to my account. But I don't even have to remind you of how much you owe me, even your salvation. In essence, Paul is saying, you can charge me, but do you really want to charge me? Because if it wasn't for me, you wouldn't be a Christian, right? And Paul is very good at this kind of thing. Now, the main theme in this book, um, it shows us relationships, right? And it shows us relationships practically these are difficult situations and issues and as a christian it's not as though you come into the church and it's all rainbows and sunshine there are often difficulties right there are interpersonal dynamics how do i deal with things that go on between me and my sister in the lord between me and my brother in the lord you know there tends to be conflict there tends to be disagreements there tends to be grudges held it tends to be all these kinds of things and, and here we see that it's about sacrifice. And we'll see that in Philippians as well. When Paul calls for unity, right? That is sacrifice. That is what you and I have to do. We can't say that it's my way or the highway. We all need to sacrifice. That is how the body works together. So this book is also important because of the issue of slavery. So... Does the Bible, um, what does the Bible teach about slavery? You know, does the Bible ever condemn slavery? The answer is actually no, right? It doesn't. Even in Ephesians and Colossians, what does Paul say to slaves? He says, be the best of slaves, right? Uh, what does he say to the master of slaves? He says, be the, be the best masters, be good masters. He does not say, stop it, get rid of your slaves. This is an evil system, overthrow everything right? He doesn't tell the slaves, rise up against your masters and kill them, overthrow them, right? He doesn't say that. And Christianity 
has got a lot of criticism from the culture and society down the years because of that. They say Christianity is barbaric and pro-slavery and against human rights, etc. Some say, if you look at the letter to Philemon, Paul is saying, let him go. Paul is telling Philemon to let Onesimus go. And so they say that indirectly, Paul is against slavery. He's, he's condemning it indirectly in this book. And so that's how some try to defend Christianity. But that is clearly not the case, right? That is not what's going on in the text. So then what do we do uh, about what the scriptures have to say about slavery? Especially for me and you uh, being in South Africa, being South Africans and with our, uh, with our country's past, a common reason for people rejecting Christianity is that it's a white man's religion, right? It is pro-slavery or that Christianity was a tool for the enslavement of the masses. So you most likely heard all of those statements, right? Maybe it's something you yourself have struggled with or have had difficulty in understanding. Well, if someone comes to you and asks, what is slavery wrong, right? This is how you can answer them as a Christian, right? You say, biblical slavery is not wrong. Because even in the Old Testament, there are laws about how to treat your slaves. I imagine that most of us, when we think of slavery, we think of American chattel slavery, right? You get pictures from movies like uh, 12 Years a Slave or Harriet Tubman, movies about Martin Luther King, uh, Martin Luther King Jr., right? That is the idea. Slavery in our culture has come to mean that. The system where black people, Africans, were kidnapped from their land they were made to be like property. It was the owning of human beings and their offspring as property, uh, being able to be bought and sold and forced to work without wages. That is called chattel slavery, right? That is what we think of when we hear the word slavery. But the Bible is very clear. Kidnapping someone is a capital offense, right? It is worthy of the death sentence. Kidnapping people is sin. Abusing people is sin. Torturing people is sin. Murdering people is sin. The Bible is very clear about that. And so the Bible is explicitly, undeniably, unashamedly against those features of chattel slavery. But when it comes to the actual institution of slavery, it does not say it is wrong. right? And it could actually be helpful, especially in a biblical context. The biblical context looks something like uh, me owing, let's call him John, right? And I owe him money. I owe John money and I'm not able to pay back John because for whatever reason, I'm not really good with money or some disaster, something happened. I'm not able to work. I don't know. Then me, and if I have a family, me and my family become John's slaves, right? And so we work for him and he manages the finances and everything until the debt is paid off. And in the Old Testament, if you were a slave to someone, you would work off your debt, either until you paid them off or until the year of Jubilee, when all debts in the nation of Israel had to be cancelled. But if I really enjoyed working for John, say he was a good master and he took care of me and my family really well, then I would have, I would have had the right and the choice to stay and continue to be his slave. That is how it worked. So what I'm saying is that the institution of slavery itself, the design of it, is not necessarily wrong. In fact, the Bible says that we are slaves. Some, some Bible translations have changed the word from slave to servant to soften the blow, to not make you feel offended. 
right? But it is the truth. You and I are slaves of the Lord Jesus Christ. If slavery was inherently evil, then why would the Holy Spirit tell us in his word that we are slaves? That implies that God is a slave master, and that would imply that he does something evil. So it cannot be inherently evil. And when God institutes it, when he gives laws, it is God ordaining it and also giving the structure for it. So you cannot say that it is innately evil. Now, some people have a view of uh, American chattel slavery, and it was wrong and evil and demonic on so many levels. But you know what's interesting is that at the time of the Roman Empire, the, sla the slavery was very similar to chattel slavery. Right? It was very similar. And it would have depended on the masters as to how the slaves were treated. In the USA, there were good masters and there were evil masters. Right? You, can read, you can read this up in the history books. At the time of the Roman Empire, there were good masters and there were evil masters. Throughout history, you will see that right? all the way up to today. Even today, there's slavery going on uh, in the Middle East, in the East and the Middle East. People are being bought and sold into slavery even today, to this very hour. And so Paul is in that system. He's living at the time of the Roman Empire, um, in the height of slavery, you know. And, and yet, Paul doesn't say, you can revolt against the system, right? He says, if you can get your liberty, if you can get your freedom, then get it. He's not saying that once you are a slave, you are always bound to be a slave. But I think the main thing that is offensive to people today is the idea of service, right? Being a servant and submission. Today, there is high rebellion against all kinds of authority and authority structures. If you want to see people get upset, take a megaphone, go stand in a public square, open up your Bible to Ephesians and read out loud, Wives, submit to your husbands, right? Or uh, children, submit to obey your parents. Masters, uh, sorry, slaves, be subject to your masters. People will, will have a fit, right? The first people to complain will be the evangelicals, funny enough. But that is probably one of the most offensive things you could say today, right? Submission. Submission is the S word. It's become a, it's become a dirty word. Submit to a master, serve somebody. That is horrific. That is abuse. That's what people think. But yet, when you come to scripture, is submission a good thing? Did Jesus submit? Yes, he did. Jesus submitted to the Father. Is service a good thing? Is being a servant a good thing? Well, Jesus came not to be served, but to serve others, right? To serve us. Not only did Jesus do those things, he is the standard of submission because he did it perfectly, right? And it's glorious. It is beautiful. So, a lot of opposition to slavery actually exposes people's hearts to the idea of submission and service. That is one of the main things. People hate the idea of an authority over them, right? They hate the idea of serving and being in submission. And yet the Bible is full of that. Sacrifice and submission is the core foundation of all relationships. Husband and wife, parent and child, employer and employee, and uh, funny enough, if you think about it, the, the slavery as an institution happens today in, in the form of employer. At least its closest picture is employer-employee right relationships. Um, you are a slave to a company, right? You work for them so that they pay you so that you can pay off your debts, right? So that you can pay off your, 
your home, um, your, your, your mortgage, or the, that you can pay off your car, you have debts, and so you need to pay for them. And so you have a master that you serve in order to service that debt, right? So it's a core reality that still hasn't changed to, to this day, right? These features of these relationships, these structures in society, the hierarchies that exist in society have always existed and they will exist, right? Even though there's this push today to make everything equal, to flatten everything to flatten everything up, it's just not possible. God designed and built the world with hierarchies. Even in heaven, there is um, hierarchies, right? Some people will have more glory than others. Um, uh, Revelation, I think it's Revelation, says that, um, uh, you know, pastors will be worthy of double honor, you know? So... Um, and if you think about it in society, when things break apart, it's a breaking, uh, especially with relationships, it's the breaking of these very core features, a marriage where there is no sacrifice and submission will fall apart. A child who does not submit to parents is on the path to ruin and destruction. That family could be torn apart. A business where the employees refuse to follow instructions is doomed to collapse. Now, if the gospel impacted a society fully, everyone would deal with their money correctly and wisely. Everyone would work hard. Everyone would be diligent and there wouldn't be a need for slavery. In many ways, we can compare the issue of slavery to divorce. Uh, if the gospel fully impacted a society, would there be any divorcing? No, right? Is divorce sinful? It can be, but inherently divorce is not sinful. There are legitimate reasons for divorce. And remember, God divorced his people in the Old Testament. So it is allowed, divorce is allowed because of the hardness of hearts in the people. And it is the same with slavery. It is allowed, even though it is not the ideal. But because of sin, the need for the institution of slavery will prevent even worse damage. Right? Again, I'm trying to be careful with my words here because I'm talking about the institution of slavery. And so it is a tricky subject because you don't find the Bible advocating for violent reforms. And yet a lot of changes in the world have come about through violent reforms, right? There's been many revolutions, there's been many civil wars, many infightings, many overthrowing of this leader and that leader. But scripture is clear that that is not the way to go. Some Christians have said, for example, that the ANC taking up arms, you know, through Mkonto Wesizwe, that was ungodly because they were using violence to overthrow the government, right? But most of the time, those same people, those same Christians will look up to America as a Christian country when the Americans did the same thing, right? The Americans rose up and took up arms against the English. It's the same thing. And those people will say, no, 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 it was different. It wasn't. It wasn't different, right? So we have to be careful. In that example, it's either they are both wrong or they are both right. I would say that they are both wrong. They justified by saying that um, the king was taxing too much. Taxes were too high. The king was no longer a good ruler. He was corrupt. Uh, he wasn't doing his job while he is still the king. Where does the Bible say that you have the right to disobey those that God has put in authority? Right. Um, there are legitimate channels and ways to bring change. And if, if those don't work well, in everything we trust the Lord. Right? It is difficult, but we trust the Lord. We submit to the Lord. Paul, at this time, 
is living under the Roman emperors and they were incredibly cruel and erratic and malicious leaders. Uh, there were many reasons for him to say, let's revolt against the Roman system. It's evil. It's oppressive to Christians. Uh, it's, it's persecuting Christians. And they were promoting the worship of false gods. They were taxing the people, etc., etc. There were many reasons. But our first duty is always to obey. Right? God's wisdom is greater than ours. So we know that in obeying, we are taking the correct reform. Okay. So um, are, are there any questions or comments on that? I don't want to stretch, I don't want to stretch um, one chapter's worth of a book into a whole lot of minutes. If not, we can come back to the end of the session. Okay, let's look to Philippians then. So if you turn with me, turn back to Philippians. I think it's after Galatians. No, after Ephesians. So we have the we have Paul's letter to the Philippians, and it's while Paul is probably in Rome that he writes this letter. Um, Paul has so Paul had a desire to go to the east, right? So if you have a map in front of you and you're just looking at a global map, you have the west and you have the east. Um, Paul has to has a desire to go to the eastern part of the world to go and spread the gospel, but he has this vision of a Macedonian man calling him over, right? He's being called to go to Macedonia. So Paul ends up going to uh, Philippi or Philippi, Philippi. Uh, and Philippi is named after Philip of Macedonia, who was the father of Alexander the Great. And I don't have a map, but there is, you know, if you're looking at a, a global map, there is a divide between East and West. And I would argue from, from Turkey, uh, onwards it's east right even though turkey falls under europe geographically uh, but it's not it's not really europe it's asia minor and culturally turkey is not european right it is very much eastern and so it is this call and you see more details when you read acts chapter 16 it's this call that paul receives to go west that really changes world history instead of going east paul goes west and when he goes west, you get Philippi, Athens, Corinth, Rome. All of these places are impacted by the gospel. And the history of the church is really the history of the west. I'm not saying that the church doesn't go elsewhere. Uh, some of the disciples, Thomas went to India and the gospel reached China very early on. But it died out and it didn't really impact those areas. You also had the Ethiopian eunuch who came down into Africa. And that church continued for 2,000 years, but it didn't really impact the rest of Africa. And that is actually a helpful one to remember because people think Christianity as a white man's religion came in the 1800s or 1700s. But actually, it's been in Africa for 2,000 years. Right? The gospel wasn't brought by white men either. It was originally here from the apostles, from the Jews. But God, in his sovereignty, has chosen the West to be impacted by the gospel over hundreds of years. And now it seems to be a time when God is moving away from Europe and America to South America and Africa and Asia. That is where major growth is going on in the church. Whereas if you look at Europe and even North America, 
um, the, the rapid rise of secularism and atheism and, uh, and idolatry is just, it's, it's, it's been so rampant that uh, Europe, for example, is completely pagan now. You know, it's a shadow of what it used to be. Um, and so for 2000 years, the West was the focus. Missionaries and missionary efforts came from there. England, especially the great missionary movements came from the Baptists in England and then later from America. And I don't know why God did it that way, but he did it that way. And because God did it that way, it was the best way because God in his wisdom and he is sovereign and he chose to do that. The church still continues in the East and you have your Greek Orthodox and Russian Orthodox churches. They never really impacted the world, but um, they never got past their Greek cultural influences and their Russian cultural influences. Um, and so really that's, that's the history of the church. That is some background into the church. And so Philippi is the answer of Paul to go to the West and not the East. And we sit here today in the kind of world we do uh, that we live in because of that right and so Paul is writing to the Philippians uh, who is very fond of who uh, really helped his, minis his ministry and uh, Philippians is a beautiful book the main theme one of the main themes is joy rejoice in the Lord again I say rejoice in the Lord right joy is a main theme uh, but the primary theme is unity the unity of the body and Paul will say you need to be of the same mind. So if you turn to chapter 1 of Philippians, chapter 1, look at verse 3. Um, he says, I thank my God in all my remembrance of you, always in every prayer of mine, for you all making my prayer with joy, because of your partnership in the gospel from the first day until now. And I am sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. So that is a verse you want to memorize and to remind yourself of. The Lord has begun a work and he will bring it to completion, right? God doesn't do half jobs and he's not like me and you, right? He's not a procrastinator. He began the work of salvation in you and he will, he will bring it to completion. And then we get insight into Paul's prayer life. So look at verse nine. He says, and it is my prayer that your love may abound more and more with knowledge and all discernment so that you may approve what is excellent and so be pure and blameless for the day of Christ, filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ to the glory and praise of God. And then he carries on about preaching. And then verse 27, he says, Only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ, so that whether I come and see you or am absent, I may hear of you that you are standing firm in one spirit, with one mind, striving side by side for the faith of the gospel. Right? Notice that what he says there in verse 27, standing firm in one spirit, in one mind. And then verse 28, and not frightened, by, not frightened in anything by your opponents. This is a clear sign to them of their destruction, but of your salvation and that from God. For it has been granted to you that for the sake of Christ, you should not only believe in him, but also suffer for his sake, engage in, some, engage in the same conflict that you saw I had and now hear that I still have. So verse 29 is it's an amazing verse, right? It has been given to you. Here is a free gift. It has, it has been given to you to believe. 
So faith is a gift, which means it must be election. God has chosen those who would believe. Otherwise, everyone would believe or no one would believe. But the fact of the matter is that some believe. And those who do believe only believe because it has been granted to them. It has been given to you to believe. It is a gift. It doesn't end there though. We're given faith, but there's another gift, which is suffering. Suffering as a gift. Isn't that what he says? Uh, he says, for, verse 29, For it has been granted to you that for the sake of Christ you should not only believe in him, but also suffer for his sake. So faith is a gift and suffering is a gift because it is for his sake, right? It is to glorify God, it's to honor him. So it is a privilege, really. And so chapter 2, verse 1, he says, So if there is any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy, complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. So we can tell that there was some problem, some underlying threat to the church, which could have brought about division. And we'll see just now that there's two ladies who are fighting. But Paul is urging them to be of the same mind and to do nothing from selfish ambition or rivalry or conceit. And it's very easy to do that. Right? It's very easy within the body of Christ to become competitive, trying to be the best preacher, the best theologian, the best singer um, out of rivalry, competing with others. Now, all of, those, all of those things are good, right? But you can do good things with the wrong motive. You can do it from a heart that only cares about self and your reputation. Sometimes the motive is rivalry. You want to look like the best Christian, the most godly girl or the most spiritual guy. Our hearts are so wretched. It's terrible. And Paul is saying, don't do that. Rather, in humility, count others more significant than yourselves. And verse 4, he says, let each of you look not only to his own interest, but also to the interest of others. Don't be selfish. right? Be humble. Think of others. Humility. Humility is learning to sacrifice. You know, going back to what we were saying in Philemon, sacrificing for the good of others. The devil is always looking for opportunity to bring division in churches, to break them apart, to break the relationships in them apart. So what do we need? We need to be on the same page. We need unity. And unity doesn't mean conformity as if now we must all dress the same or speak the same or do the same things, laugh at the same jokes, be angry at the same things. It's not a cultural conformity, right? Being of the same mind doesn't mean external conformity. We should be having conformity of mind. And that is much harder to achieve than external conformity, right? It's easy to put on a uniform, to put on some clothes uh, that look the same as other people, go to church and point to that and say, we all dress the same, look at our unity, right? But really, what are we here for? We are here to glorify the Lord. We are here to make disciples and we are here to seek first his kingdom. And we are here to have unity in that, in those things, in the great commission. That is what we are to be united in. We are to be united in the person of Jesus Christ. So Paul says, look to Christ, have the mind of Christ. 
verse 5, he says, Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. So this passage talks about Christ and his condescending. He is God, right? Jesus didn't come thinking, oh, I hope I am God. No, he is God. Yet he humbles himself to become a man. But he doesn't humble himself to become just a great man or just a king. He humbles himself to become a servant. Then he humbles himself to die. Not a painless and pretty, innocent looking death. It's not a heroic death. It's not a aesthetically pleasing death. He dies on the cross. It's the most painful of deaths. It's an agonizing death. It's a shameful death. So you see this humbling, this descent of Christ. And yet God has given him a name which is above every other name. And so the way up for a Christian is the way down. You want to be great. You want to be highly exalted. That is actually not a bad desire. Right? It's a good thing. But in order to be great, you need to become the least. Right? The last shall be first. And look at Christ as the example. And again, you see how Paul in dealing with issues, whatever it may be, he always brings it to the Lord Jesus. Always goes to him. And then he says, verse 14, Do all things without grumbling or complaining that you may be blameless and innocent. So do all things without complaining. And that is a verse we need to memorize, especially today. We love to complain. Right? We naturally complain and grumble. But that is wrong. It is a great sin to complain and grumble because who are you complaining against? And I'm not talking about legitimate things. Legitimate things like evils and injustices and oppression I'm talking about the complaining that comes from bitterness and resentment and even worse than that, ungratefulness, right? That is sinful. If it becomes, if it becomes grumbling and complaining, ultimately it's complaining against God, right? He is sovereign over all of our situations and circumstances. And so to complain is to do so against him. And it's easy for it to be divisive. Grumbling and complaining is divisive. All you have to do is... Get all the people who have the same complaints into one group, into one corner, and there you go. You have factions. Then comes the gossip and the slander against this group or those people or that person. The Bible is very, it's very harsh. It's very um, hard on people who cause division. And in Proverbs, God says six things that I hate, seven that are an abomination. And then he lists them. And the seventh and the most hated one by God is a person who is divisive. Those who bring division amongst brothers. So to bring division, God hates that. It is a work of the devil. The Lord wants to bring us, the Lord wants to bring us together in unity of mind. So don't give in to grumbling and complaining. Right? Daily, we are tempted to complain, but we shouldn't because we should and we shouldn't because, as verse 15 says, that you may be blameless and innocent children of God without blemish in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation among whom you shine as lights in the world. Basically, if we are people who don't complain and grumble, then we will be different to the people in the world because that is how the world operates, right? Through grumbling and complaining. Um, Romans 1, what does it say? It says, they don't give thanks to God. 
right? When unbelievers don't give thanks to God, what do they do? They complain and they turn away from God. If you turn on the news, it's just feeding you things to complain about, right? It's just giving you material. Here's the thing you complain about now. Here's what you can complain about now. People are now famous on social media for ranting, grumbling, complaining. You go onto YouTube and people will literally just have a video, um, you know, talking negatively about this or this or this and this is what's wrong with these people or that thing or um or whatever the case may be but you and i are called to be light and to shine among the darkness right and then if you turn to chapter three chapter three is about justification by faith alone it's also one of the main messages here in this book so he says verse two look out for the dogs look out for the evildoers look out for those who mutilate the flesh so by mutilation of the flesh, he just means those who are all about circumcision, right? Um, uh, the Jews in the church who circumcise because of, re- of because of religious reasons. And we looked at this when we looked at um, was it Galatians. Uh, there were Jews who even made it a, a requirement for salvation. It says verse 3, for, for we are the circumcision who worship by the Spirit of God and glory in Christ Jesus and put no confidence in the flesh. Though I myself have reason for confidence in the flesh also, if anyone else thinks he has reason for confidence in the flesh, I have more. Circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, as to the law a Pharisee, as to zeal a persecutor of the church, as to righteousness under the law, blameless. But whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. For his sake, I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ and be found in him. Not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ. The righteousness from God that depends on faith, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and may share his sufferings becoming like him in his death, that by, that by any means possible I may attain the resurrection from the dead. So Paul is putting up his whole CV. Right? He's saying, um, um, I, I have more reason than any of you to put my confidence in the flesh. And yet, he says, I count this all as rubbish. And the word for rubbish there is a very strong word. It's the word for theses, right? for crap. The flesh is not where Paul's confidence is. It's not in his achievement. It's not in his degrees. It's not in his personality and character or intellect. It's not in his ethnic culture. It's in the Lord. And that is the place where we need to come as well. He's not saying any of these things, any of those things are bad, right? It's not bad to be a Jew or to have studied the law or to have been circumcised, but they are counted as worthless, as rubbish, as feces, in order to gain Christ, right? It's all about where your confidence is. If your confidence is in something that is not Christ, then your confidence is in feces. It's in excrement, right? Which is ridiculous. Our faith, our confidence is in Christ and his righteousness. And so um, if you turn it into chapter four, chapter four, verse two, he says, I entreat Euodia and I entreat Syntyche to agree in the Lord. Yes, I ask you also, true companion, help these women who have labored side by side with me in the gospel 
together with Clement and the rest of my fellow workers, whose names are in the book of life. So there are these two ladies, uh, Euodia and Syntyche, and they are fighting. Are they Christians? Yes. Paul even says that their names are in the book of life. It's an amazing statement to say about someone, right? And how does Paul know that? Well, because he has seen fruit in their lives, right? And are they mature Christians? I would say yes, they are because they have labored with Paul in the gospel. So it is possible to be a Christian and mature and to still have problems, right? Be aware of that, like keep that in mind, you know, um, being mature in the faith, you know, being, being grounded in the faith is not an, an, an insulator from problems. And most likely the issue wasn't a sinful one because if it was, if it was doctrinal, Paul would say who is correct, right? If the one lady was saying you need to get baptized once you are saved and the other one was like, no, you don't need to get baptized when you're saved. Paul wouldn't respond by saying, oh, you, you need to get along with one another, just agree in the Lord, right? He would correct them. He would say, this is the issue. Um, here's who's right or who's wrong and so on and so forth. But Paul doesn't do that. This is a personality clash. It is not, it's not a doc, uh, doctrinal sinful clash. Some people, you just don't get along with them, right? And Paul says, agree in the Lord, that is where humility comes in. That is where you die to self. My personal taste, my preferences, I put to the side. I humble myself and we agree in the Lord. And then verse 4, he says, Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say rejoice. And remember that Paul is in prison, but he's calling on them to rejoice. Again, I will say rejoice. How are we going to do that? Look at verse 5. He says, uh, the Lord is at hand. Uh, sorry, verse 6. Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. So he says, pray. Bring everything to the Lord in prayer. Whenever you are stressing about something and you just can't stop thinking and worrying about it, most of the time, you haven't brought it to the Lord in prayer. And so pray about it. Why don't you just bring it to the Lord? You're trying to sort everything out yourself. You're trying to fix your own problems. But you haven't even come to the Lord and said, here's what's going on. Please help me. Please take this burden away. Lord, these are my requests. And we all do that, right? Or rather, I should say, we all fail to do that, to take it to the Lord in prayer. And it shouldn't be the case. Paul is saying, if you don't want to be anxious, here's what you need to do. Because anxiety is a sin. It is unbelief. You are not trusting God. How do we fight anxiety then? It's by doing the opposite of what anxiety tells us to do and trusting God. Anxiety is looking to you, yourself. Anti-anxiety is looking to Christ. Right? So we look to Christ and we come to him with thanksgiving, the text tells us. So it's not a, it's not a okay, fine, I'll pray about it. I'll take it to the Lord. Because grumbling and complaining is a sin, right? We come to God with thanksgiving because we have so much to be thankful for, right? We even have the privilege to pray to him. So you can be like, Lord, thank you that I can actually pray to you, that I have your ear. The person on this planet with the worst life, living in the worst of circumstances, 
has so much to be grateful for. And so do you. How many prayers has the Lord answered in your life that you never said thank you for? Right? We should always remember to be grateful. And as you bring your prayers and your supplications and you cast them on the Lord, verse 7 tells us, The peace of God which surpasses all understanding will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. So it is a picture of peace. Peace is a soldier standing in front of your heart to guard and protect it. The peace of God is there to protect you from the attacks of worry and anxiety and doubt. And what is the reason for the peace? The peace is a result of knowing and understanding that God is in control. Right? He will take care of it. No matter how big the problem or the dilemma is, it is still under the sovereign will and plan of God your Father who is working all things. And all things means literally all things, even the bad and the tragic and the frustrating and the unclear for your good, right? Understanding that, accepting that, believing that will give you peace. And so that peace will guard your heart and your mind. That is the way we do it. We need to be praying. And remember, it's not the, the prayer that has power, you know? It's not the exercise of prayer. The point of prayer is not the exercise of prayer. It is having the ear of the sovereign ruler who cares for you. So, God hears our cries and he hears our petitions and our thanksgivings. That is why we have private and corporate prayer. It is important for us to pray together and to pray for one another in the church. Paul says in Ephesians, I'm offering supplications for all of you. And the amazing thing about praying for other people is you stop focusing on yourself. right? You start bearing other people's burdens. You start, you start to bear their burdens. And in doing so, your own burdens feel lighter. Right? And so uh, verse 8, he says, Finally, brothers, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is just, whatever is pure, lovely, and commendable, if there's any excellence, if there's anything worthy of praise, think about these things. What you have learned and received and heard and seen in me, practice these things, and the God of peace will be with you. So fill your mind with good things. Right? The, words, the words that Paul uses here are not typically Christian words. In the original Greek language, Paul is using Greco-Roman cultural words. So he's saying whatever is majestic and awe-inspiring, whatever is winsome, right? They are the words that the culture used for cultural things. And Paul says, fill your mind with those things. So what he may be getting at here is that keep in mind that, so keep in mind that Christianity affects all of life. Right? It's a holistic worldview. It's not just for spiritual things and for Sundays. It's not just for growth group and Sundays. It affects music and art and architecture and clothes and fashion, literature, furniture, music, everything, movies. Everything that human beings do, that is, that is a culture. Right? That's, I think that's even a definition of a culture, basically. It's everything that we do and the way we do them. Paul is basically saying, in your lives, in the culture, seek what is best, right? Whatever is good, whatever is great and praiseworthy, seek that. Seek those things in the culture that are good, right? And we should be able to discern what is good and godly and will build us up. If we fill our minds with good things, then it will be good for our hearts. And the opposite of that is true as well. And so um, that is Paul's letter to the Philippians and some of the main things that we can take away from that. Uh, are there any questions or comments or thoughts that anyone would like to share? And I see there's also a general question.
you agree that slavery is a biblical institution. Okay. Okay, so Mercy's posted a link for um, biblical slavery, and I guess you guys can read up on it. But yeah, if you guys have any thoughts on that, or Philippians, or whatever the case may be, the floor is open. Nothing. Okay. All right, then. I think everyone is, is happy. We'll leave it there. Um, let me just close for us in prayer, and then I'll make a few announcements as to what's going to happen for the last few weeks of School of the Bible before we go our separate ways. Okay. Lord Jesus, thank you for um, thank you for your word, Lord, and thank you for um, the many blessings that we have in you. Thank you for the unity that we have in you. Thank you for the freedom and for the joy that we have in you. We are able to rejoice even when things are not looking good, Lord, even when our circumstances tell us to or tempt us to despair and to feel sad and to complain and grumble. Uh, even when things look good, Lord, and things are positive in our lives, Lord, may we count these things as rubbish in order to gain Christ. And so, Lord, going away from here, please um, help us to practically remember to love our neighbor, to be sacrificing in our relationships for the good of the other person. And in doing so, we'll be acting like Christ. We will be Christ-like who came and sacrificed for our sake, Lord. And so um, as we go our separate ways, please keep us, Lord. Please help us to take what we learn, to apply it to our lives um, so that we may become more godly, so that we may glorify and honor you and all of this for the sake of your name and in your name that we pray. Amen.